everybody this is nate with root in revelation podcast where we seek to make god's revelation our foundation all life uh so just a quick little uh thing i wanted to say before we get started here with a special guest Stephen boyce is with us is if you guys haven't already uh like and subscribe our youtube channel that would be much appreciated as i'm trying to be somewhat of a uh not popular but just someone that's more well noticed uh with some of the content not so much for me but for the great guests i have on like Stephen boyce uh so hey how you doing Stephen? hey nate how are you good to be on your show again round yeah. two yeah man thanks for coming so uh for those that don't know you or haven't heard the first one if you haven't you should go back check it out but uh what's a little bio of uh who you are and and what you're kind of what kind of work you do sure uh, yeah, I, I'm here in South Carolina. Uh, we were just talking about our differences. You're in New York. I'm in South Carolina. We both ended up with snow, which if we get one snow, we're lucky. Um, the problem is nobody here knows how to drive in it at all. And that's why you see cars on the side of the road all the, all day long. So, um, but I am, uh, let's see, 32 years old, uh, married, two kids, um uh, have two doctorates I have a doctorate in theology last year i finished my phd in the study of canonicity and textual criticism um i work for explain international i'm actually the vice president of explain international and oversee a program of training apologists uh pretty much across the world i, I have apprentices from fiji Luxembourg, Malaysia, here in the U.S., Kenya, Indonesia, Philippines, and uh, I'm training them uh, through semesters, just like you would see in a seminary. Many of them are currently finishing their doctorates or working toward that or just finishing MDivs, and uh, we're working with them on a regular basis. We have a group uh, study going on right now on the subject of mosaic authorship of the Torah, and different elements of that and defending uh, his authorship as well as its claims, its reliability, its intrinsic reliability. And so we're kind of doing a group project with our apologists and our apprentices together, working together for that this semester. Uh, mostly uh, I do debates. Uh, this Friday, I've got a debate against Richard Carrier on the historicity of Jesus. Um, I, I write blogs, do my own channel called Facts on Explain International. It's a, so you can find it on the website, explaininternational.com, but you can also find it on our YouTube channel. The headquarters is based out of the country of Malaysia. Um, like I said, I'm the vice president of the organization. Uh, I've been vice president for maybe six months. Samuel Neeson is the president, founder. Uh, and he's been doing that for about five years. So it's a growing ministry. It's doing well. Um, involvement with quite a few people, again, globally, investing in pastors and leaders and apologists across the world, not just in one location. So the Lord's been good to us in that way. That's good, man. Appreciate all that you're doing and, and how you guys are serving the uh, different pastors and raising up teachers and, and people to be able to proclaim the truth of God's word to all, all peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, you know, that's, that's always a good thing. Um, so in regards to our topic today, Stephen, we were, you know, I called you and we we're talking a little bit about um, trying to come up with a, a topic and we came up with this idea, the historical fallacies relating to the, to the canon. So before we can't even, is that what we came up with? I was like, what, is, I, what did we come up with? 
Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was. That's what I had written down. We'll just go. We'll go with whatever you've got written down. We'll go. Yeah. Well, this we'll say that's what it's going to be, but we'll see where the conversation goes. But uh, yeah, exactly. But um, so I guess before we kind of even get into this conversation, like what what's uh, the importance of history in regards to the canon? Like why why can't is the Bible sufficient in and of itself? Should we have other things to kind of help us uh, better? inform our understanding of the scriptures so i guess maybe my question is like just a brief kind of introduction like why why do this why do the work you do specifically yeah i think uh to to kind of answer that first question as it relates to history's importance the bible makes a lot of claims um they're not just theological claims they are historical claims. This is part of what we're working on in our project with our apprentices and apologists. There's a lot of statements made in the canonical text of the Torah, for example, about the plagues, about the exit from Egypt out of slavery. Um, those claims are allowing themselves to be tested. I don't think the Bible makes claims of itself in a shriveled up kind of hesitant way. I think that God makes bold proclamations and claims that are almost challenging the opposition to prove wrong. And so I would say naturally the Bible in of itself being the word of God, as it relates to the divine attributes of an almighty sovereign God can substantiate itself in its claims. Now, with that being said, um, we can argue it better when we include historical data. Um, the issue that we have faced in, in the reformed area of Christianity, which I would certainly place myself in, is that we have replaced this idea with sola scriptura as if that means we don't need anything else but the Bible. And that is not what sola scriptura means. The Bible um, is our our sole authority for faith and practice, but it doesn't mean the scripture is all we need. That's there are two separate things there. In fact, if you read Luther who coined the terminology, he read history. He read the church fathers. He was an Augustinian monk who recognized the importance of Augustine's teachings when it came to uh, salvation, when it came to history and records of the apostles, etc. So he clearly was not just interested in what the scripture said, although he was, but there was more outside of scripture to explore and in a way validate scripture. Um, I think that we have made a mistake that we believe, well, the Bible is intrinsically reliable. We believe that the Bible is self-sufficient and we do, but if a self-sufficient Bible that is intrinsically reliable is is a real document, if that document exists, it's going to leave its imprint all over the universe and all over history and all over archaeology and all over science. So to, to try to get a canon where it just claims reliability and we say that's all we need, as if that reliability doesn't have impact in our world and in history and in science and in archaeology, to me is, is relatively foolish um, the way that we know, like, for example, um, one of the criteria of understanding scripture as canonical, uh, Jesus said the words, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. They know the voice of the shepherd. The only way to see if that really played out true 
is to acknowledge, for example, let's just take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are many Gospels, but just with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in that state, by the time you get to the end of the second century, you have Origen making this claim. There is universally under heaven all the churches without dispute receiving the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was never a time in our church history where any of the apostolic churches in the north, the east, the west, south, doesn't matter where you're at, no church ever disputed those four Gospels as authenticity and eyewitness reports. All the others, they did. Those four were never disputed. And by the end of the second century, Origen said they were not disputed. That is evidence that the sheep of God hear the voice without any kind of counsel coming together and making choices. Uh, that's without any corroborating all the information that they have. This is merely apostles going into churches and leaving a message of the gospel in their written texts and in their oral traditions. And these churches receive the same four gospels no more. Naturally, what's the result when we see history? Nobody used any other gospels but those four in the early church. So there's evidence in history of a claim in scripture. My sheep hear my voice. So I think they're both necessitated. I don't think we should just focus on one. I think we should start with the scripture is sufficient and that it is intrinsically reliable, but we should also trace the impact of those claims in history, archaeology, science, etc. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I think uh, that's something that needs to be said. And by the way, I think that, um, and I've said this before, I think I told you this on the phone the other day, I believe I could defend sufficiently almost all of the books of the Bible without starting in history. I think, I think they majorly help. But I think intrinsically within the narratives, the divine attributes of God being revealed and its claims of reliability, I think we could take all the canon, or at least I could say I, I feel like I'm comfortable defending the integrity and character of God in all the scriptures, save the book of maybe Esther in Hebrew, and, I, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, now that my mind is remind, being reminded of this, what I could do in Esther, though, is the Greek version of Esther uh, and find that divine attributes of God revealed there, showing consistency in the nature of God in his word. But for the most part, apart from that one particular book, I, I feel comfortable seeing the nature of God revealed in scripture and it's evidenced by its inspiration through the writer, its claims, its statements, its consistency, and its reliability. So, but I don't think we should stop there at any point. I think we should always continue to go further external to continue to validate the already intrinsically reliable claims. Great. That's really helpful. And then, and then specifically with like, you know, when I think of a lot of uh, studies and well, especially in academia, so probably your kind of field more or less is, you know, uh, a lot of these top notch scholars of all different shapes, colors, sizes, whatever, are all kind of talking about, you know, the church or and or the things that happen in the church or, you know, archaeology or whatever the disciplines are, there always seems to be these conflicting uh, narratives of what what really happened or what was really going on is there a way um, as Christians that we can understand the phenomena where there seems to be almost either conflicting conclusions when looking at certain data or um, or is that kind of makes sense when I'm kind of trying to ask like why do we have so many conflicting ideas about the early church or whether it's like you know, say, for example, like Larry Hurtado talks about like a high Christology in the early church, but then say someone like, 
Dale Allison or Dale Allison or something like that, that would kind of have more of um, a lower view on maybe if we really have the, uh, the sayings of Jesus or, or things of that nature. Does that make sense when I'm trying to get at, I know it's not like a formed question, but like uh, just the conflicting uh, way. Yeah, you have the same data, but two different opinions. Uh, I mean, it's the same reason we in Christianity have a problem of going to the same passage and walking away with two separate interpretations. Um, (laughs) We all come to the evidence with our backgrounds, our educational levels and our presuppositions. Um, I don't care who you are, what background you are, what your religious affiliation or lack thereof is. Everybody comes to evidence with an already established bias. And it's not necessarily intentional. We try to be as neutral as we can be. And I believe that's true in the atheistic realm as much as it is, not not in all cases, but in certain criteria, I think there are scholars that I've debated and spent time with who are atheists who actually come to the evidence open-minded. There's clearly those that do not. They are not interested, but we can't get mad at them because Christians do the same thing. Uh, you know, well, that's the way it's always been. That's the way I've always been taught. Well, that doesn't make it right. You know, uh, it doesn't mean your perspective is right. So I think the problem is it comes down to worldview, background, education level, or, uh, the depth of study. Um, the evidence is unchanging. Um, if the opinions are changing, the issue is not the evidence, it's the people. And we need to start with what are you coming at? What is your point of this study? Why are you looking at this data? Are you looking at it to prove the Bible wrong? Uh, and I would even go so far as say, are you looking at it to already accept that the Bible's right no matter what? So therefore, this is going to equal. That's a hindrance in study, too. Um, although I believe that when you apply your heart to wisdom and truth, you will land there. But I think what happens in the Christian realm is that we have this strong, strong perspective and presupposition that we are absolutely right. And therefore it hinders us from actually being more right. And what I mean by that is we come at it with this presupposition that's pretty much typically surface level might be partially right, but needs a lot of help and a lot of adjustment. But because of the narrow-mindedness, it never digs deep and makes a strong defense. And so the information that that individual shares is very surface level and weak and usually gets used as a, a straw man in the debates against atheists, skeptics, agnostics, et cetera. So I think if both parties can come to the evidence um, and, and depending on the topic, it might have ramifications that are out the door, but some are just, you know, semantics. Um, I know multiple atheists that we come to the conclusion in places where there are places where eyewitness accounts are in order for the four Gospels. Uh, they don't think all of it is, but they think there are sections that could definitely be based on eyewitness accounts. There are atheists that will give zero zero credibility to eyewitness accounts in any of the four gospels. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to sit there and reason with them. Their mind's made up. There's nothing you can say or do that's going to change it. Uh, but then there's Christians who say, yeah, absolutely. Eyewitness accounts, but they've done no in-depth work or foundational work to actually go in and figure out why 
that's an eyewitness report. Why in the first century, the writers of that time would write in that style, that way, that format, why they would make that kind of claim without using their name as its writer. So until we leave our presuppositions as much as we can at the door when we're looking at the data, it will really dictate what that looks like in the outcome. And so I think that's part of the problem. I think everybody comes at it with their own worldview and their own background and presuppositions. And it's hard to leave those at the door when looking at the data with fresh eyes. And typically the people that do that, regardless of where they are, will land somewhere in the general same proximity, but it's the people that are not willing and closed-minded and their mind is already made up. They're the ones that that's why you got a hundred miles of the right opinion over here and hundred miles of the left over here is because there's absolutely no willingness to reason through the data. Yeah, that's really helpful, Stephen. And, and in, a, in a sense, like you even mentioned, like there's a sense why, I, like uh, I, I heard it said, uh, said once, like not all bias is bad bias. It's good. To, like, in other words, like being a Christian, like it's, we should have a bias towards the Lordship of Christ in our lives because we're Christian. Um, we can't, we can't separate ourselves from our religion and then, and, and be try to be neutral in that sense. But when it does come to evidence of whatnot, we do have to be better at how we go about that. Would that be fair? Pretty yeah. much. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, you, you can't change who you are. Right. And nobody's saying to change who you are. It is to change your mindset going into something because uh, if you've already put up the presuppositional conclusion before you even look at the data, you will not be able to go any deeper than that. Your, your standard for right will not get any better than that because you can't see past your already made up mind. And right. so, and actually what it does, and this is, and listen, I work with guys all over the world who have different backgrounds, perspectives, saved out of Mormon. I've got a guy that was saved out of Mormonism. I've got a guy that was saved out of Islam. I talk to these guys and if those two people, Mormonism and Islam come on the same study, naturally they're coming at it from very different perspectives. They're going to take one edge that the other person isn't going to take because they're used to hearing that kind of a claim. The other one, it was insignificant and unimportant. There's always going to be a new, a nuance to it. But the thing is that I've seen in all of these guys that have already made up their mind about something is I can't get them to see the better defense of the faith or a better defense of the data because they won't go any further than their presupposition. And so that's the part that's that that hurts us, particularly in Christianity, is that when our mind is already made up, regardless of what's in front of us, we might lack the better argument and be using a surface level, which is typically what happens. And those guys get blown over when they're challenged. And what happens a lot of times as well, Nate, and I'm sure you can relate with this, a lot of guys in my generation, your generation, they've made up their mind about something so long. And then when the, uh, the, the data comes and hits them hard in the face and they can't resist anymore, their faith is shaken. They go into this state of, of, of questioning. And a lot of them go into atheism. I have a lot of guys I went to Bible college with who don't even believe in God anymore um, as a result of the fact that they never allow themselves to be challenged in the state of Christianity. Uh, and and uh, so I think that's that is something we're seeing happen on a on a large scale is that narrow minded Christians are recanting their Christianity not long after as well in our generation, because they finally get hit with the data 
and they think they were lied to when really they just didn't challenge themselves to actually be questioning things from the beginning and work through and wrestle through those questions and allow the spirit of God to unveil the truth in that study. And I can share testimony of testimony in my own life where I struggled with canonical statuses of certain books that I was like, I, I, I believe this, but I don't see it. And it took sometimes a year of wrestling through things before actually saying, you know what, that I've never thought of it that way before. That makes sense to me. I'm okay with the data. It took a year of wrestling and I don't regret that year. I think that made my argument stronger and it made my, my confidence in the scripture stronger by wrestling it out rather than putting up a guard and saying, no, it's, it's just gotta be right. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful. And yeah, for sure. I've went through many crises of faith. And on occasion, I still, you know, I get hit with these uh, different objections or things you never hear. And you're like, oh, wow, I never thought about that. You don't really know how to process that. And then you may even ask a, a few people and they kind of just give you the the similar like Frank Turk answers everything or something or something yeah. like that, you know, and it's just like, a lot of times you get these uh, answers, but no one really helps you kind of work through them to understand what's going on there. What, you know, um, to help you work through the issues first is telling you, oh, just don't think that way. Don't ever consider these things, you know? So, yeah, I, I'm definitely with you on that. So, I mean, maybe we can actually get into some of these, um, some of these kind of historical fallacies or these different kinds of, uh, of uh, objections that either atheists or just uh, liberal scholarship or just different scholars in general may make, for example, you have Richard Carrier coming on, you're debating him about the historical Jesus. So that could be another example of some, maybe a topic we'll talk about a little bit, but in regards to the canon, what are some of the, off the top of your head, some of the, um, some of the claims that you've heard regarding, uh, some, uh, you know, historical fallacies regarding the canon, like what are some of those things that you've heard come, you've come across in your studies and, and working oh, through. Uh, <laughs> well, the biggest one that comes, and unfortunately, even Christians are victims of this, is that the canon was decided at the Council of Nicaea. Um, that's probably one of the biggest ones that I've heard over and over again. And I've been in the middle of debates where it's like, well, I mean, you're talking about uh, a group of people that came together and picked their books. It's like, wait, where, when did that happen? Like, can you well, it happened in the Council of Nicaea. Can you show me in any of the canons of Nicaea where they picked books? Like, I'd like to know. Um, they quoted books to defend the deity of Christ against Arianism, which was the main reason that council was called. But there are no avenues of the Council of Nicaea where they sat around and picked books. Uh, so to me, that that's one of the biggest ones. Uh, to me, that was one of the most alarming, uh, not that atheists just repeated that because they're just repeating information. It was that Christians were like Christians were saying that that went to conservative seminaries and it's like, where, where are you getting this from? Like, um, I, I don't understand why you believe that happened, uh, but it comes from a misunderstanding of Nicaea. Uh, so I would say that's probably one of the biggest fallacies. Gotcha. Yeah. So that, so that's uh, one of them. And then what are, what's maybe a second one that you've uh, come across before? 
Well, I think uh, on the Christian side of things that there are certain, um, there's just avenues where they're not willing to, they, they focus so much on the fact that the Bible is a divine book that they forget it is also a human book. Mm. And typically this happens when somebody has not read the original languages. And that's not a knock on Christians. I, I, I don't expect all of Christendom that, to know uh, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic um, in order to uh, understand the scripture more effectively. Although I would say it's not a bad idea to uh, learn those if it's possible, or at least enough to utilize the tools that are available today uh, in order to go to the original languages. But just all that to say, like uh, some some people make the fallacy that some of the canonical statuses are so clear cut. Um, some of it's based on traditionalism. For example, um, when we're talking about John's gospel and the book of Revelation and first, second and third John, uh, for years, I'd obviously held that they were all the same John uh, because John's name is ascribed to him. Uh, I don't I don't think that anymore. I, I think that John the Apostle wrote the gospel, the epistle, the first epistle, and then the book of Revelation. I don't think he wrote second and third John. I think John the Elder wrote John, uh, second and third John, who was also an eyewitness who was with Jesus, that knew Papias, who Papias speaks about uh, in his work, uh, that he was with two of the eyewitnesses of Jesus that were not a part of the Twelve. Um, and most assume from his writings that there were two Johns, which why not? It was a very common name at that time uh, in Palestine. Uh, so I do think there were two Johns, and I don't think second and third John are written by the Apostle John. I, but I'm not willing to die for that claim. Um, but some people make the assumption that things are so clear cut, but they don't think through the human element. For example, like the book of uh, Mark. Um, most in church history have asserted and clearly asserted that Mark's gospel is Peter's gospel. So there's, there's a human element there where you have Peter, who is a fisherman, um, was not trained in the rabbinic schools. He was probably educated up to the age of 12 to learn to, to, to learn to read and write and to quote Torah but he would not have been instruction in the second and third tier given to the educational system of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the Jewish rabbis. Um, Jesus gave them an opportunity of a lifetime. So when we come to some of the Petrine writings, whether it's first Peter, second Peter, or Mark, the gospel uh, being Peter's gospel, you can you can understand why Peter probably used Mark to write his gospel or was suggested for Mark to use as writing his gospel. He clearly didn't write first Peter either. He was the author, but if you read the end of first Peter, it says that Sylvanus wrote that. Um, it could be that Peter learned Greek over time and got better at it. And that uh, is, by the way, one of the biggest reasons I think Second Peter and First Peter are so different syntactically, but could still be the same author, is the usage of an amanuensis. Um, we know in First Peter it wasn't his wording and structure. Um, we know that it was uh, Sylvanus. So naturally, I can understand why, because he's a fisherman. Um, I've heard people try to make the argument that... Um, Peter was a very educated person. Listen, I'm not saying he was dumb. 
I'm not saying that he didn't understand concepts and he didn't convey truth. What I'm saying is, is he was a fisherman and you do see the differences between a fisherman and his background and Paul who grew up and taught under the, under the tutorage of Gamaliel. Um, the work is dramatically different. Um, if you look at the, and by the way, and this is one of the reasons most people do not use Peter's writings to start people in Greek with, uh, specifically second Peter for that matter. Um, but when you go to, for example, John's gospel, John's gospel uses a lot of elementary terminology, a very limited vocab. But if you study vocab in your first, second semester of Greek, you can pretty much translate the first chapter of John pretty well. Uh, he doesn't use a wide variety of language. Now, then you hit Luke's gospel, who is a Greek, uh, who is trained as a physician under multitudes of languages and literary works. His Greek is unbelievable. Um, he's using terms one and done time, you know, one time and it's done. And you never see that word again. He's borrowing from the Greek realm of the ancient Greeks and their usage of medicine. He's doing all kinds of literary work that takes somebody who is absolutely educated and instructed uh, versus somebody writing second Peter or the gospel of John. You can tell there's major differences and we lose that human element when we're talking about canonical text, because it's like, well, it's all divine. Yeah, but it looks different. How God inspired his word was not a cookie cutter, one size fits all. He used the personality, the background, the language barrier, uh, the education level, the, the, um, the background of their work, whether they're a physician or a fisherman or a Pharisee that was saved by grace. He used every part of that human to write the divine scripture in the way that they experienced it. And it's hard to see that in English more so, but when you read these original languages and even the prophets, I mean, read Isaiah and Jeremiah, very different, both very intelligent. Jeremiah grew up in a priest's home. He was very smart, very intelligent. He naturally um, had an intelligent level that exceeded a prophet like Amos, who was uh, pick uh, who picked sycamore fruit and watched herds. Um, his style's different. It's very different. Isaiah was different. Um, when you, Ezekiel was a priest's home and grew up in a priest's home, he was intelligent and well-organized and his writing was very literary in very uh, forms. And he used even apocalyptic style of literature in his writing in addition to historical and prophetical uh, ministry. So, you look at the prophets, and, and if you just kind of one size fits them all, you, you miss the beauty of God using the man to write the truth by God's decree. And I think that's another fallacy that we see in canonicity, is that we, we in Christianity, eliminate the human writer too much, and it causes it more problematic to defend when we do that. Because one of the greatest defenses I have of all four Gospels is the personality of the writer. Um, I did an entire segment on Luke's gospel, for example, showing that if, if Luke truly is the writer, then there's going to be traits of a physician in here. Like you're going to see medical emphasis that Matthew and Mark and John don't use. And it's everywhere. If Matthew is a tax collector, he's going to be able to know multiple languages because he had to write receipts. He would have had to know Hebrew. He would have had to know Latin. He would have known Greek. He probably would have known Aramaic. He would have known these other languages and he would have had to be able to um, 
bring his skill level of being a tax collector with numbers and knowledge of what goes on in the legal side of things and have implemented that in his gospel. And traces of a tax collector are all through Matthew's gospel. So it does no good to come to a defense of these books and not see the human elements in them in order to defend the authenticity, because the key is we're looking for eyewitnesses. If the Gospels are true, they have to be traced to those who are authorized by Jesus to teach his message, and that's the apostles. And if we cannot take those words back to reliable eyewitness accounts, whether Luke's writing for an eyewitness or witnesses in his case, or they were an eyewitness themselves like Matthew, then we can't trust anything in Scripture. We can't trust those words that they are Jesus's words because they weren't recorded by somebody who was there. They were secondhand guesses and information or fabricated material where it may have been partially true and blown in out of proportion or something was romanticized. But boy, if they were there, they can report it a lot more accurately. But we miss that and we miss the defense of the, the Gospels, particularly if we do not see the human design and element behind the divine words. So I'd say that's another fallacy on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, that's so helpful. And that's been something really helpful for me personally, because, you know, years ago, you come to the Bible and you just kind of think it's like a book drop, you know, falling down from heaven and you you just pick it up and everything makes sense and everything's just laid out for you. And you kind of forget the fact that there is, you know, unity and diversity in the whole canon right you have like you were just talking about you have different people with different personalities different skill sets different different talents different things they want to emphasize or different things that they that uh, maybe stood out to them more so than other particular things and i think where a lot of people run into issues and, and and it becomes a fallacy it becomes a wrong kind of approach to this is we like to assume that uh you know, the criteria should meet the standards that we're setting on the text rather than letting the text in, like, tell us what, what the standards are for them and go based off of that. Because I see a lot of people, you know, make objections to, you know, different books of the Bible or whatever, and they'll say things like, oh, there's no way that <clears throat> this can be true because this isn't the way that we would use, or this isn't the way that I would communicate it. Or that's right. not the way that that would be, you know, even I think just in terms of apostolic hermeneutics, right? That's one topic you think of how they go about quoting the Old Testament or how they go about, um, you know, connecting uh, messianic psalms with with uh, the New Testament or whatever. Like, in, for example, like how you see the author of Hebrews and the author of um, Galatians and all these other books, especially the Gospels as well you see how they, they quote the old Testament, but it's not in a way that would, you know, pass, give you a pass on a hermeneutics exam today. You know what I mean? They, they don't do things according to our standards. Um, yeah. And, and the writer of Hebrews particularly quotes textual variances that are not in our Hebrew text. They're in the Greek Septuagint um, and makes entire theological claims on the basis of that. In fact, I did, a program, I think maybe a month ago or so, on did the writer of Hebrews utilize the Apocrypha? He quotes from the Wisdom of Solomon and, and the Sirach all the time. Um, makes um, wonderful biblical Christological claims from the Wisdom of Solomon and, and, the, and, and even 
areas of the Old Testament, like where you can go to your Hebrew Bible and it says one phrase and you go to the Septuagint over here and it says this phrase and he went with the Septuagint and made a Christological defense of Jesus from the textual translational variant. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa what do I do with that? Uh, I remember because I taught through Hebrews last semester at my church. Right. Uh, we went chapter by chapter and I showed them, I said, uh, all right, now look in your English Bible, read this verse and how the writer of Hebrews is using it and go back and read Jeremiah. And how does it read in your English Bible? And if you read it in English, they contradict each other. They, they, they don't read the same. Uh, one says, uh, I disregarded them. And the other one said, I'll be a husband to them. Well, that's, that's quite different um, language there. I will be a husband to them or I disregarded them. And the writer of Hebrews utilized the Septuagint over the Hebrew text that we have today in that section and made an argument from it. There's other places just like that. According to my standard, I don't like that. Like, I just, I don't like that. It's uncomfortable, but that's how it happened. That's the way it went. Um, quoting apocryphal works and textual variances and all this other stuff. And it's still inspired scripture. Um, to me, that's a, a extraordinary to think about. And it doesn't fit my my comfortable level of looking at scripture, but it's really not about me. God did it the way he wanted to do it and under the circumstances he did it in. So uh, my, my goal is to follow the truth and see where it leads and, and realize that God was wiser than me when he had his word brought into the pens and paper of, of time and written down exactly how he wanted it and the way he wanted it and the time that he wanted it and the format that he wanted it and the utilization that he wanted it. And he didn't ask my opinion what I thought about it. So, I mean, at that point, I just surrendered to his will and sovereignty and move on uh, and just state the data. I mean, that to me, that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. Super helpful. And yeah, I mean, even I think of a, what was a, I think it's in Matthew one, maybe where he says from the prophet Isaiah and then quotes a passage from Malachi. Mark chapter uh, one. Or is it Mark chapter one? Sorry. Yeah. And, yeah. That's um, a textual, textual variant there. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, the cool thing about when you run into these kind of like you're saying these kind of difficult things that you're kind of scratching your head, like what the heck do I do with this? Um, usually ends up giving you some of the most, I mean, it drives you deep into the text and it, it can help you actually, you know, where say someone that's a skeptical scholar or something, they kind of see stuff that doesn't make sense. And they're like, Oh, whatever, that's stupid. And they move on. But the thing um, I always think is cool is we can look at these things as Christians and work hard at trying to either, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, come up, coming up with a better answer or trying to find a solution, even if it takes a lot of effort, a lot of work. Um, I think of uh, GK Beale and a lot of work he's done in like biblical theology and, and, and how he's, he's kind of helped bring solutions to a lot of these difficult texts that he, you, that uh, he used to really struggle with, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, you just put in the time, put in the effort and you try to say, okay, what, what's going on here? Maybe I'm missing this because I'm having a wrong expectation on what to assume here, you know? So, but uh, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you, Stephen. And um, so in regards to some other uh, kind of, things that you've heard pop up regarding the uh, canon. So we talked a little bit about uh, that it was put together um, at the council. Um, 
one question regarding that what what's the exactly what is the roman catholic model for canon um so we believe in the self-attestation or or self-authenticating model sorry and they kind of have do they have some sense of where they do say the like the fathers kind of pick the books or something like that no that but that 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 didn't take place most people need to realize this that nobody picked books until the council of trent um which is 16th century right um the catholic church did that in response to the protestants um now the protestant reformation produced good things and bad things the the protestants differed on canon too uh they were butchering some things uh luther had a horrible view of canon uh he had what was called a canon within canon framework and he did not hold to what we would call self-authenticating canon he believed that if it's a book that is inspired it must preach christ now in doing so he eliminated quite a few books (laughs) um we all know his wrestling with james everybody has read that has read luther and his frustration about works and righteousness etc knows he had an issue with james uh but they don't realize that he had an issue with hebrews as well um i don't know how in the world he concluded that um hebrews did not preach christ when i've gone through hebrews that's all it preaches so uh but that's that's what happens in those circumstances. The reformers absolutely did not like the book of Revelation. Luther did not like books like Esther, talked about it being thrown away. Uh, John Calvin didn't even do commentary uh, on the book of Esther. Uh, the reformers had issues with their canonical worldview. Uh, the Catholic Church came together to preserve the canon based on what they believe the early church accepted. Now, the problem is, is that they did not follow the full tradition. They followed a, again, biased tradition. They included the apocryphal books, which they claimed the early church utilized, and they did. They most certainly did. In fact, they utilized many of the apocryphal books in their liturgy. The question is, is did they see those books as scripture? And the answer is no. I mean, even Jerome made argument, though he translated them, he made argument against them as canonical now people and i debated catholics on this say well no no no, he changed his mind i'm sorry can you please show me where he changed his mind because at the end of his life he's writing letters to mothers about how they should raise their children and he told them not to do it in the apocrypha but he translated them he saw them as important he saw them as historical he saw them as necessitated uh in certain circumstances he saw them as a part of liturgy but he never saw them as scripture and said as much that the earlier churches before him did not but they did have them. Uh, but the Council of Trent made a decision to choose books as a response to the Protestant Reformation. So, but the problem is, as I stated, the Protestant Reformation did not do us very much help in that as well. They, Luther and, and Calvin, you know, they really hurt some of the claims of canonicity for us. Uh, they did good things, but those were some of the things that they probably didn't help us in. The canon kind of chose itself. Like you really don't have to pick the canon or see a council. The church was like, hey, these are the books that we received that were passed down to us from the apostles. They even fact-checked it. Uh, North African churches fact-check it at the 
in Rome and said, Hey, we received these books. Are these the ones you received? Yep. That's the ones we received. Okay. And, uh, and they, and they moved on. They, and they have the same 27 new Testament books that we have in our, in our canon. Uh, the question really isn't about the new Testament, the Catholic church and most Protestant churches accept the same 27 books. Although I want to continue to add, not all Protestants did, but moving forward from the time period after the reformation, uh, 27 books were universally accepted by Protestant churches with some begrudging um, in some areas. But Old Testament was really the dispute amongst the Catholic Church from the Protestant Bible, and that is the apocryphal books uh, that were included. So, and, and, and then they have extended editions too. Like when you look at um, Daniel, you have the bell and the dragon, you have other elements of longer versions of Daniel. Like I stated uh, earlier, I, I still happen to agree with that. There's the longer version of Esther, uh, which the Greek version, there's three versions. There's a Hebrew and two Greek. Um, the Greek version that's the fullest version is almost double in size from the Hebrew version that we have. So there's a lot of dispute about books like that. Um, there was writings extension from Jeremiah. Um, so these were the debates. I mean, it was more so about the Old Testament canon. But remember, Jerome went to the Jewish churches and studied from them. He learned, he was trained, he was taught Hebrew from uh, some of the most prominent rabbis of his time. And they told, and he learned from the Jewish churches that the apocryphal books were never a part of the canon. They were historical uh, books. And so he made that claim, in my opinion, to the day he died. Um, he was a politician at times because he was under the watchful eye of Rome and he didn't have an independent voice at all times. And there was times where he complied and went along with it. There's times where he absolutely did not. So those kinds of things happen when it comes to the canon. Um, the self-authentic canon sees the canon as naturally and organically happening without the necessity of man coming in and saying it's this one this one this one not this one not this one not this one and that's the beautiful thing about the canon that we see is that there was never a time where a council picked books except for the council of trent and the roman catholic church but up until that time people had just received them as scripture uh and seen them as scripture there were some disputed books which i think i talked about perhaps at one point on your program there were some books that were disputed in minor areas but as a whole the churches received the same 27 new testament books and as i demonstrated that's exactly what they said at the the council of carthage and hippo writing to the churches of rome saying hey these are the books we got from the apostles are these the ones that you got up in rome yep same books okay and they compared notes and things like that but they did not sit down and say this is in this is out they, they never did that gotcha and now you you know talking about the uh, self-attestation of the word of God and, and whatnot, or the self-authenticating model, what are, is there any uh, objections that you've heard re regarding that model? Or what are some of the things that people might say um, against that or why that might be something that would make sense to someone? Uh, well, there's Christians out there that don't believe in inerrancy and they're content with, um, you know, like gospel writers correcting other gospel writers, uh, or that claims are not perfect. Um, so they're kind of fine with some of those things. So they'd have an issue with the intrinsic reliability aspect. Um, 
I, I think that the the pushback that uh, so I don't use self-authenticating model when I'm debating anybody in the area of Canada, especially atheists, nor Muslims for that matter, because it sounds like an over-exaggerated bias, and you're pretty yeah. much going to get nowhere from that point on. Um, though I believe it is, I don't use that terminology. Um, I do believe that it is a it is, it, I will spend time on its self-authenticating model in the sense of its divine attributes, its intrinsic reliability, but I also will defend it historically uh, from that perspective too, because I think, as I said, it makes claims that are going to impact history, impact our text, and impact uh, the events of the world. Um, so I, I would say that the downfall and the criticism is that when people hear self-authenticating, they think over an over-exaggerated biasness going towards it. Uh, and if that's the case, they're automatically turned off and think you're closed-minded. And again, I, I can understand that. I can understand why that's the case. Gotcha. Thanks for that. So Stephen, uh, so you do have this debate coming up and I guess it kind of relates to Canon somewhat because it has to do with the reliability of the the uh, authors talking about Jesus and you have Richard Carrier coming up in a, in the near future to debate him. What are some of the, I mean, I don't want you to spoil it for anybody, but what are some of uh, his objections to maybe Canon um, in regards to the historicity of Jesus? Cause it probably obviously has to tie into the authorship of the gospels and the new Testament in general. Am I correct? Yeah, well, he thinks the Gospels are all pretty much second century, and John's Gospel is probably later second century. He doesn't think any aspect of the Gospels and Acts are first century at all, or even remotely close to eyewitness accounts. Um, he thinks seven letters of um, Paul are authentic by Paul, uh, but he would reject pretty much the rest of the New Testament apart from some of Paul's writings. Uh, now, I don't know when you're releasing this video, so uh, I probably should be careful probably, with some of my arguments. Uh, next week, mid oh, next good. week. Well, the debate's okay. Friday, so uh, okay. it'll be all news by this point. Um, when it comes to um, his understanding, particularly, I'm actually not even going to defend the history of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, my goal is to go through his arguments and his criteria and utilize his own rules. Um, he accepts Galatians as Paul and he accepts First Corinthians as Paul. So I'm going to spend a lot of time uh, arguing from those two letters in addition to historical accounts. But his issue is the canon is that it doesn't trace back to anybody who is near or with Jesus. So they're absolutely irrelevant. Uh, especially the four Gospels and Acts, absolutely dismisses them. The closest thing that he said we could get is probably 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about the apostles and, and, uh, and Jesus appearing. But he would say that a lot of the scripture is a bunch of Christian bias. In uh, the Old Testament, is a bunch of Jewish bias. So when you're debating and arguing with Carrier, um, if they're a Christian, they have no credibility. If they're a Jew, they have no credibility because they have some sort of bias, as if the others don't, you know. Um, even though Christianity and its literature is probably the most attested documentation in history of the Roman Greco the Greco-Roman world, you can't find any antiquity 
to the depths that we have in the New Testament, to the depths we have in the church fathers, to the depths that we find in the Old Testament scriptures, including the Dead Sea and Qumran. We have so much in history for the history of the Old and New Testament that automatically gets labeled bias and prejudice. The problem that I have with that is what culture, what teaching, what philosopher doesn't have followers or groups that are biased to their own teachings? The question that, that, that I'm not looking, of course, the disciples were biased to Jesus. That's not the question to me. Was it accurate? That, that's the question. It's not, was there bias? Everybody's bias. The question is, did they produce accurate material? Is it reliable? Uh, was it based on something they saw or is it based on something that they were rumored 200 years later about? So his argumentation is pretty much, and if you read it, well, that's just Christian myth. That's Jewish myth. That's Jewish bias. That's Everything's thrown out. Every evidence that you can bring is considered bias and it's not sufficient. And to me, if we do history that way, we don't have anything. We, we, we don't know anything in, in history. Uh, because most things in history, we only have one document for, or one inscription for, or one uh, hint in, in an inscription inside of a, a tomb, or one document that's actually 1,500 years after the original. Um, so when it comes to all those other documents, we don't treat history that way. Um, I debated a guy who is a student of Carrier. Oh, man, it was maybe eight, nine months ago. I mean, it may be longer than that by now, but it was like beating your head against a wall. I, I lost IQ points when it was over with because you could not persuade in any way a educational, intelligent argument. Uh, when it came to, for example, I did a comparison side by side between Socrates and Jesus, both teachers, both never wrote. Uh, and their only thing we know about them is the people that were with them. And they both had people that were with them that deviated and turned into cultic groups off of them. Uh, we don't have bodies for either one of them. I did all this side by I, I used the same historical criteria on Socrates and Jesus and an entire introduction of 20 minutes on it, showing that they are the same rules. Not only do you have two guys that are equally viable as historical figures, but Jesus had 10 times more for his existence than Socrates did. And the, the, the guy in the debate said, I'm fine. Socrates is a myth. I mean, it's like, wait, what? Like, so nobody in his, nobody looks at Socrates in history and says the guy didn't exist. We question which one existed because his eyewitness reports, it sounds like there's three totally different guys, uh, but we don't deny he was a real man or even that some of his philosophical claims are from him. But boy, when we do, when we don't want Jesus in the picture, we'll take 10 times more evidence, throw it all out for biasness, throw it all out, and are willing to even go so far as say, I don't care if Socrates is a myth, that's fine with me, by applying the rules. That's how silly it can get when you have a blinding bias. Uh, so when you're dealing with people like Carrier or his students, that's the kind of responses you get when it comes to the area of canon or evidence for reliability and eyewitness accounts. Yeah, that's unfortunate because it just kind of seems to stifle the conversation, let alone like it's, uh, I mean, what do you, I don't even know how, like, <laughs> like how you can even. There's nothing you do anymore. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, just, you just hope that somebody in the audience is listening to you uh, who hears that nonsense and goes, wow, I don't want that position. 
Uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's where most debates are for. You're doing it. You're doing it to help people in the audience. You're not going to convince the other uh, person across from you. Sure. Sure. Now what, what does, uh, you know, Jesus mythicists or, or just maybe Richard Carey's followers, I mean, what do they believe? Like, what, is there any kind of something that they're somewhat certain about regarding history or is, is it just kind of, uh, they base it on uh, percentages and likability and probability. So Jesus has a two thirds chance, according to Carrier, two thirds chance of not being real. So he, st- he still has a third. He didn't completely dismiss him. But if you listen to his arguments, he absolutely completely dismisses him. But based on his statistical data, he has a two thirds chance of not being true. So it's, it's probabilities. Um, so he's worked this mathematical figure up for historical criteria, whereas if this nature of statement is made by this person at this period of time, it has this percentage chance of being probable. So it's going for the higher probabilities. I don't know how in the world Jesus only got a one third um, because you got to throw out a whole lot of evidence and claims, which is exactly what he does, uh, that are for him that we wish we had even a fraction of for other guys in history um, against a double standard in, in that scenario. But uh, it's, it really comes down to their argument is a, a likability probability. Uh, it's more likely that it's this, it's more probable that it's this, it's higher percentage chance that this is legit. This is a low percentage chance that's legit based on whatever criteria he wrote up. So that's typically how they make their arguments. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that is just like, you know, they're not skeptical enough. I mean, if you're going <laughs> to like if you're going to be that skeptical and that crazy about those particular things, I mean, why not, you know, be that skeptical of the very methodology you're using? I mean, if if you're questioning everything that deep, I mean, might as well throw out your even uh, your very theory of how you're going to obtain probabilities, because how does that make sense? Maybe that's all. Well, when you think, you know, know, when you think, you know, everything, then, you know, you know, you you know better than the historians of ancient time who were within 100 years of the events. I mean, that's what that ends up. You pin a guy that was 100 years from the event who copied documents that survived, but the documents didn't. But his copying of them did. They have no credibility, but we in 2022 do, right? Well, that's just bias, you know, and we can't prove it because we don't have that document anymore. Yeah, but he was a historian. Uh, you know, I, I find myself saying that all the time in these, these debates, like, but he was a court historian. He was a historian for Constantine. I have to deal with Eusebius all the time. He was under peer review. He couldn't just say whatever he wanted. And he didn't just say whatever he wanted because he got protested all the time in his claims, mostly theological, not historical. But it's like, you know, Eusebius didn't just sit in a room and get to make up all the Christian stuff he wanted and say, oh, I'm quoting this guy from his text, which is very likely that he had because he had access to the entire library of Caesarea and Constantine commissioned him to do work across the world where he got to stop at other libraries. He got the records from Odessa. I mean, I don't think you just sat there and said, how can I make up this claim? And then write it down and say, maybe 500 years from now, the document I'm claiming and writing from will disappear. And I'll be the only one that preserved it. He didn't know that. Um, as much as Eusebius was maybe copying somebody's work, say like Hegesippus or, or some of these other ancient texts that he had the opportunity to look at, he didn't sit there and go, I bet that guy's five volumes 
or or Papias as another example. Uh, very little bit has come out of history, which was left over. Why? Because Papias is late first century, early second century. I doubt that Eusebius reading these volumes written by these guys thought at that time, well, 500 years from now, that guy's work's going to go extinct and mine's not. So I'm going to try to make him say something he didn't and hope 500 years from now they won't know. I don't think that's the way that went. He's a historian that anybody at that time could have fact-checked him on with those documents because they had access to those same volumes and they could have easily said, uh, that's not what Hegesippus said or, oh no, that's not what Papias said. They could have done that. He was putting himself in a place of peer review and he was peer reviewed. I have a list of 10 specific people over a 200 year span who reviewed Eusebius and critiqued him and showed that he had a theological bias towards a certain eschatological position. I mean, we see that, but they never dispute his history. He was a church historian, but he was also a Roman court historian for Constantine. That's bigger than the church. He was uh, made aware. So, so it's kind of like we have this ancient quote of a quote because the volume has gone extinct, but the quote of the quote has not. It was preserved. Well, we can't trust that. Really? I mean, have we thought through the ramifications of that? Have we thought through how that would have looked? Not now, but, but we, so we can't trust it then, but we have a better idea now. So they had access to multiple documents within a couple hundred years. We're thousands of years apart from it. And we know better. I don't think so. I, yeah. I don't, I don't look at history that way. Not, not a chance. Yeah. Yeah. That's an unfortunate uh, bandwagon hop on. And I've seen a lot of, Sorry, I got all worked up because that one comes up all the time. And like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh no, 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 you're good. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate because it's kind of like a, zeitgeist and all these other kind of things these people get kind of hooked in these theories and you know just are fully committed full on board with them you know um but uh yeah steve so we probably got what 10 more minutes i don't know if you had any um any other objections or any other kind of a thing or things that have come up relating to um you know fallacies with the canon um we went over a couple and then some other extra stuff, but I can't think of any personally off the top of my head that we haven't talked about. So I don't know if you had any that you've just experienced or. No, I think we talked through quite a bit and yeah. enough your audience to think through. There's obviously many, many, many more out there, but um, I mean, guys can follow my work on my, you know, I have a podcast called facts. It's an acronym father's apocryphal canon um, uh, textual criticism and scripture. Uh, I, it's, it's on YouTube through Explain International, but it has its own, uh, channel through the podcast. And I talk about these kinds of things all the time. Um, I've written multiple, uh, articles, blogs on these issues. I have my own translation of many of the Gnostic gospels, like, uh, the gospel of Peter, I have my own translation of, and I've written extensively on, extensively on, so, I mean, you can find more information just by evaluating the text that uh, I've written and the documents I've uh, put together and the shows that I've done and multiple debates and, and, and interviews like this one. So uh, there's a lot to learn and I'm ever learning, ever learning uh, on this subject. And uh, it's, it's always exciting to learn new things. I, I don't feel like I've achieved anything. I feel like I've started something. 
Um, anytime I look at a canonical issue, it's like, man, I, the minute I think I, I make a good move on this, I realize I don't know anything. I got a lot more to go, uh, and a long way to go. And so, uh, don't get to the place. And I would tell your audience this and anything, don't get to the place where you feel like you've mastered something. And you have nowhere else to learn. Um, there's always something to learn. There's always something. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD or you just finished with a GED. Um, you're always learning and, uh, keep yourself true to the texts of scripture. Uh, God's word is true. I believe if you study it as it is given to us and leave as much bias out, God will reveal truth to you in a, in a powerful way, in an impactful way that will allow you to defend the scripture from a deep conviction, not from a repeated line. Uh, a lot of Christians are just repeating lines and reading other scholars instead of learning it for themselves. And if you allow yourself to wrestle with truth, you will build a deep and strong conviction of truth, and God will use that in a great way. And that would be my challenge for anybody studying any subject, especially the canon of Scripture. Yeah, that's super helpful, Stephen. I appreciate that. And and the, um, for someone that might be listening that is maybe interested in these particular topics and they're wondering, well, well, where do I, if I do want to learn more about these things, or I do want to kind of grow in my assurance and certainty regarding this being God's word, what is a good place or a good idea for someone to maybe start in towards that direction? Do you have any maybe helpful tips for them? I would suggest uh, outside of scripture, naturally, um, certain scripture, but outside of scripture, I have always and will continue to encourage people to get a copy of the Eusebius's history of the church. Um, I can't think of a better place for people to start because he deals with these issues. He talks about some of the arguments about the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation and things like that. He, he, but he's recorded so much of our history that is lost in antiquity. And you can get single, I mean, it used to be three volumes, but you can get a single volume now, paperback for $15 on Amazon. I mean, there's no reason. Um, I would say, I would suggest if, if that's the bare minimum you can do, then do that and read through the history of the church from the time of the apostles all the way to his day in the fourth century. Mm. And I think you will start to have your mind and your eyes open to the reality of, oh, wow, the early church looks nothing like us <laughs> and we look nothing like them. And you'll see where we have deviated into traditionalism. You will see where we have um, allowed our society to dictate truth. And it'll open your mind to realize that there were arguments and fights for the truth and people were killed for what they believed on things today that we, you know, we get our feelings hurt on, on, on YouTube for making a claim and we get our feelings hurt because somebody in the comments said something ugly about it. Um, that a guy would have said that over 1800 years ago would have had his head chopped off for, um, mm -hmm. So we, I think it'll give us a better perspective that Christianity is bigger than our generation. So I would suggest to start in a historical sense in Eusebius's history of the church, his three volumes. Uh, I think you will find a tremendous help in them. Awesome. Appreciate that, Stephen. Well, with that being said, um, thanks again so much for coming on, man. We'll definitely have to have you come back on. Uh, I listened to your uh, your stuff on First Enoch yesterday with uh, Nephilim and uh, all that good yeah. watchers and stuff. Maybe we'll have to get some uh, 
one of those cool mysterious shows on in the near future. Talk about all that fun stuff. Um, that's great. Yeah. But I appreciate you, man. And thanks for all you're doing. Uh, and without further ado, this is rooted in, uh, rooted in revelation podcast, where we seek to make God's revelation, our foundation, all life. God bless. Mm-hmm.